calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today on the show, we're going to talk about crystal balls. By that, I mean we're going to explore some strategies for building more robust market forecasts. To do that, I'm pleased to be joined by Jerry Fowler today. Jerry is the head of European Equity Strategy and Global Derivative Strategy at UBS. Jerry's been building and improving his process over a long career, which has seen him leading the research strategy in the C-suites of Citi, BNP Paribas, and Aberdeen over the last 20-plus years. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. And we're here to talk about forecasting possible market outcomes, and the holy grail for any forecaster is finding a leading indicator that might give us a predictable heads-up about what's coming down the pike and when. An inverted yield curve, for example, is considered a predictor of a recession. Though the running joke, of course, is that inverted yield curves have forecast something like 12 of the last seven recessions. Can you start us off with a quick thumbnail sketch of leading indicators and and how you use them? Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, leading indicators are really the tools to help us understand the potential future outcomes that either the market cycle or the business cycle might pursue. Now, we're a little bit less interested in explicitly forecasting the market cycle because we can do that in other ways, looking at financial market variables and, and whether greed or fear are taking over. But really what drives market performance in the medium to longer term is going to be the business cycle. And you can invest and buy and hold for the long term, but we think there's a lot of value in understanding when the business cycle is an expansion phase or a slowdown phase or a contraction or recessionary downturn phase and a recovery phase. So there are a dozen different ways you can look at leading indicators. Uh, they'll tend to be based on survey measures of businesses or consumers. And these are generally calibrated to GDP outcomes over the coming sort of six to nine months. Uh, you could use any number of these. We, we've centered on just a very simple one to get going. And we're using the OECD Composite Leading Index. They've got these indicators in every country of the world, really. Uh, but they also have a G20 indicator that sort of consolidates most of them in a single uh, a single framework. They seasonally adjust it, they amplitude adjust it, and it gives us a pretty good handle on what the soft data, the, the leading indicators would suggest about the business cycle in the coming six to nine months. It's a great place to start for equity investing. So let's get into it. I understand that you look at markets through the lens of a macro regime distribution. Can you talk about what that means and how it differs from traditional approaches to market forecasting? Yeah, often market forecasting can assume that sort of history is homogenous, but I think it is, it's, well, it's very obvious when you start using leading indicators that market behavior, the profits, the valuation changes that we see in the market can really cluster quite significantly around the business cycle. So when you start looking at historic returns uh, in downturns and in, in recoveries and expansions. They can be quite different, uh, not just different for the market. Downturns are obviously bad and recoveries are obviously good, but also different when you get into sectors and styles, uh, which where it gets a lot more interesting. Certain sectors will recover very strongly from a trough, whereas others don't. They recover later in a business cycle because they're the beneficiaries of business capex that isn't the first thing to improve when the business cycle improves. 
So having a good understanding about how performance and earnings and valuations will yeah, and their changes will cluster through the business cycle is um, is really what we're trying to achieve. Now, a lot of people do this. I've seen on the buy side as well as on the sell side, lots of different people attempting to uh, look at different regimes in the market. It's actually become pretty popular. Lots of people look at it. What I haven't seen is anyone acknowledge that we just don't know, particularly when you're looking at survey-based forward-looking leading indicators. You can't take the data and the level of that leading index as gospel. So I think what we're doing that's a bit different is focusing on the probabilities that the leading indicators are telling us about each regime in that it might well be that the leading indicators are low and maybe still declining, but we can extract from that leading index theories whether there's actually an improving probability that we're undergoing a regime shift. And so considering the balance of probabilities across all of the regimes and how those are shifting through time, I think enhances our understanding of, of market behavior substantially. So you come at it with a bit of humility then, you sort of understanding that those leading indicators are really just a best guess, but but have error in them as, as well. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there's been, I mean, speaking of, you know, volatility, if you look back at 2022, obviously there was a fair amount of volatility in the leading indicators themselves over that year. And I'm thinking specifically of the back half of last year. Can you take us through that through that period? What were the indicators flashing and how did the market interpret things and, and what were what mistakes were made by your peers? Yeah, so it's a great example of, of how leading indicators can really give you sort of the wrong signal if you're not looking at them carefully. So for most of last year, the leading indicators were declining pretty rapidly and actually got down to fairly low levels towards the end of the year. And they're still flat to declining at the moment. But when you consider the probability that leading indicators are giving you an actual accurate picture, you wouldn't definitively say, especially as we got into September, October last year, that we were absolutely definitely having a downturn. The probability was high. It's, it was the dominant probability. But you could see in the leading indicators that there was a rising probability that actually the leading indicators were getting it wrong and maybe were in recovery already. Certain components of the leading indicators started to trough and rise. So consumer confidence, for example, had been very low. And in recent months, it's actually been ticking up because at least in the last couple of years, it's been quite correlated to inflation expectations. So as inflation comes down, the consumer feels a little bit happier confidence rises, and that can be a, a reasonably useful leading index for certain parts of the market. So, you know, what we found was that really from August, September onwards, the dominance of the downturn regime, the leading indicators, was waning in favor of a rising probability of recovery. By the time we got to October, November, you already had a probability of recovery of 30%, and even now we're back up towards 50-50. 50% downturn regime, 50% uh, recovery regime. And it, as as that recovery probability rose, naturally, you saw the market starting to react to that. So cyclicals outperforming defensives, market rising reasonably strongly, which is not uncommon when you get a recovery regime, historically, if that is the dominant regime. What you tend to get is a rapidly rising market with a positive skew. You know, the, the rallies are stronger and more significant than the declines. Uh, so really, it's just a matter of whether at the moment that trend towards recovery leading indicators persists and we go into a new business cycle, or whether it's just the balancing out of excess pessimism um, and that we might be sort of troughing in these leading indicators, but you know, uh, trundling along at a, at, a, at a low but stable level. And that wouldn't be uncommon. Um, 2001 to 2003 was a good example. Even all the way from 2012 all the way through to 2020 was another period of what I call regime flux. 
when it can get quite confusing as to exactly which regime you're in and why these probabilities matter most. So you touched on skew there, uh, Jerry, and, I, and I, that's one thing you obviously you can't ignore when, when analyzing how these different environments evolve, is, the, is that skew of distributions at different points in the cycle. Can you talk a bit more about skew and how your approach incorporates the skew factors there? And we've talked before about this, and, it, and it's a way, in a way, it's similar to you know how an option pricing model works. Yeah, skew is a really important feature of markets. It's the way investors really think about investing. It's about whether you've got a higher probability of upside or downside moves, and whether those upside or downside moves are rapid or small, significant or, or minor, and that naturally means that you can look at the value of skew uh, and the value of distributions in the options market because in options markets you get prices of options at many strikes downside strikes upside strikes and many maturities as well and from that option pricing structure the option pricing skew you can actually extract the probability that the market is implying for expiring you know at the expiry date at a specific level, you know, if you've got a if the S and P is at four thousand, and you've got a three thousand eight hundred strike, and you've got a three thousand eight hundred and fifty strike, then essentially you can start comparing the prices of those versus all other options and how those change, and imply the probability that at expiry the S and P is exactly between three thousand eight hundred and three thousand eight hundred and fifty, because at that point one of them is going to be worthless and one of them is going to have some value, and so it gives you a very precise calculation. But once you start looking at what the options market is telling you about where investors think the market is going to go, you can compare it to your own expectations. Uh, but your own expectations, therefore, need to form a distribution. Yeah, I think a lot of the time, investors and particularly sell-side strategists can be very sort of point-oriented. Point you know, the S&P is going to end the year at 3,200. But it's awfully precise. The reality is that's, you know, one point in the distribution of possibilities of where the S&P might end. So how do you build that? Well, what we look at is when we look at these historic regimes, we're not just looking at average returns. You know, average returns are negative in downturn regimes, but very positive in recovery regimes. We're also looking at how volatile are those regimes? Uh, you know, are downturns more volatile than recoveries? Well, generally, yes. Do downturn, downturn regimes have a negative skew? Yes. Do recovery regimes have a positive skew? Yes. So once you actually start building independent distributions for each of these regimes, you can then apply the probability that you think that you're in those regimes. So let's say you're 50% downturn regime, 40% recovery regime, and add them together. So by the time you look at historic distributions with a certain probability and you add them together, you end up with a whole market historically validated forecast distribution. And then you can directly compare that to the current market option implied distribution. Uh, and it gives you a much richer suite of information to assess where the market is at. Not only are you looking at the current market level, but coming back to skew, you're looking at whether the market is pricing the same balance of risks to the upside and downside as you are. Uh, and you can see those discrepancies crop up from time to time, as we've seen uh, through the last six months in particular, which uh, perhaps I should go into a bit more detail on. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's where the opportunity lies, right? When, when what you see implied through those probability distributions when they differ from from your own views and that's that's when the opportunity to make some money is right yeah so so back in uh, as we go back to october and this rising recovery probability because the leading indicators were suggesting this rising probable recovery regime possibility when you looked at what the forecast distribution 
should look like based on your regime probability. It showed for the Eurostocks, for example, that even though the market was down at about 390, an entirely justifiable level if we were sure that we were having a downturn regime, uh, it was a long way below where the balance of probabilities would have the market if you assume that the leading indicators were giving you a mixed signal that actually maybe there was a 40% probability of recovery. So at that point, the market was pricing at the low end of our forecast distribution and should legitimately rise. What we've seen recently is that the market got very excited, particularly about Europe, as we went through January and February. Uh, the Eurostock 600, the SXXP, shot up to, I think it got nearly up to 470. And at that point, we're looking at the regime probabilities. They haven't shifted a great deal. It's still 50% downturn, 40% recovery. We don't feel any need to overlay that with any you know, any qualitative adjustment. I think it is legitimate to say that the risks should be skewed to the downside. And yet you look at the market at 470, having shot all the way through where our forecast distribution would justify the market to now be right at the top end of our distribution. So sure, you could justify under certain circumstances that the market was at the right level, but really only if you thought that the leading indicators were going to continue to shift towards a new business cycle and an expansion regime. If you trusted that the leading indicators were giving you a, a fair representation of this regime flux environment, then the market had simply overshot where it should be pricing uh, and was due a retracement, which is really what we got for various reasons in the last month. And, and we, we continue to use that model to assess where markets are in the macro regime. So you, you touched on the idea that we're sort of a 50-50 chance on a recovery here. So can you talk a bit more about that? Like, What are the tea leaves telling you today? Are we in for a V-shaped recovery or L-shaped one, K, W, pick a letter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're 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 very 2020 there. And nowadays, it's soft landing, hard landing, no landing. Yeah, in in, uh, in the, the metaphors get really stretched when you start talking about uh, whether the landing gear is coming off or the engines on or on fire. I think I'd like to go for the one that we we ultimately at some point are going to need the brace position, because at the moment we are still seeing pretty healthy jobs growth. We are still seeing reasonably elevated in, inflation uh, inflation figures. And that means that companies are still able to reprice inflation quite happily into their revenues and therefore reasonably protect their margins from inflation. And, you know, Bloomberg recently did a quite an interesting story talking about excuseflation. And it's still very much in, in train that the, the companies are able to actually keep their profits reasonably elevated. Now, I think the pressure on corporate profits is, is coming thick and fast. You know, monetary policy acts with a lag. Those lags tend to median around 16 to 18 months, and we're only about 12 to 13 months, uh, 12 to 14 months through the first rate hike uh, from the Fed. So we're really coming into the hot patch of uh, lagged impact of raising rates, and we're seeing that stress come through, obviously, in some of the regional banking uh, stress that we've seen in the US. Um, I, you know, at the moment, it has not hit the real economy very hard, but there are signs that it will. One of the most compelling I saw recently was that the senior loan officer survey that the Fed does uh, was released in February for the, the quarter prior uh, up through January. And it had been the case for a while that bank lending standards had been tight and tightening across all categories, real estate, commercial, consumer. What had not been obvious is whether the tightening in lending standards that we'd seen all through last year had already transmitted into demand for credit. It had, in some cases, demand for credit for mortgages disappeared pretty quickly. Demand for credit for autos started uh, falling in the middle of last year. Demand for broader credit was starting to fade in the third quarter. 
but it really took until this January, February release of the data for it to be very clear that the demand for credit through credit cards was actually now negative and declining. So that February senior loan officer survey was the first of the uh, reports that really highlighted that credit standards were tight and tightening in every category and credit demand was weak and weakening in every category. So it's really just a matter of time now before we, before we see the effect of that and the lagged effect of rate hikes on profitability. Now, you know, as it relates to profitability and where we're going to see this, it's an unusual cycle where no particular sector needs to break. You know, there's no bubble in housing. There's no bubble in tech. You know, there is the theory that maybe there was a bubble in everything, certainly uh, profitless growth perhaps. But from an, from an actual economic perspective where many people are employed and many profits are made, there was no, no excesses to really flush out. So rising interest rates, how are they going to bring inflation down? How are they going to weaken activity and squeeze that pressure out of the market? Well, it's going to impact those that are most sensitive to rising front-end rates. Uh, so that's people who take loans rather than issue bonds. And it's going to impact those that have the most debt. And in this current environment, that's not large-cap listed equities who either issue bonds or, for many of the FANGs, for example, have very low debt at all. So they're just not impacted by rising interest rates in the same way that certain parts of the economy are. Uh, and so we think this is a very hidden credit tightening uh, that we won't see until it sort of smacks us in the face. We are starting to see hints of that coming through in, for example, bankruptcies. If you look at bankruptcy data in the US now, it is finally rising. It's still low, but all of the rise is coming through in private enterprise. We aren't seeing public bankruptcies just yet. And I think that's entirely, it's going to be private enterprise, smaller businesses, that will experience the impact of rising rates most because they've got more debt and they they take that in the form of loans rather than issuing bonds. That's interesting because we're seeing, I mean, we're not seeing very, very high default rates yet in the high yield market and spreads are still relatively modest, right? Yeah, yeah. It'll be refinancing risk for some of the companies that um, have issued bonds and that takes time. That's really where lagged effects come into play because you need those bonds to mature. But in the meantime, there's a decent amount of stress under the surface. And at some point, in the not too distant future, we think probably within a few months, there are lots of these businesses and large parts of the economy that may well hit a hit a wall. And coming back to that point, you know, we, we really need to you know get into the brace position at some point. But, but our nowcast data says it's not going to be April. The nowcast data we've got suggests that it's another blockbuster month of non-farm payrolls growth and uh, another blockbuster month for inflation. So a continuation of the pattern we saw in February, March. So do you do you see then the Fed pivoting to a more dovish position? this year or is it still a ways out because we've still got, you know, we're seeing, as you said, a little bit of demand destruction on the consumer side, but not enough cooling of the jets uh, on the corporate side or, or like, what do you see uh, in terms of an arc of the tightening versus loosening standards for central banks? Yeah, yeah I think the uh, the pricing of interest rates got a little bit overheated when Powell was sort of potentially going to increase rate hikes back to 50 basis points after that sort of fairly high inflation and jobs data in January. It, it is still elevated. The, the jobs inflation data is still elevated, but now the market's gone the other way and expects that financial stability risks will mean that the Fed can't go very much further, if at all, uh, after the next rate hike. So our view is still that there is some runway for the Fed to ease hikes a little bit further because they need to ensure that financial conditions do stay tight, if not tighten marginally further. So they don't want financial markets to ease financial conditions to a significant extent before they're ready to. Um, but equally, they're conscious that the lags are coming through uh, as we speak, and they've got to be pretty conscious of financial stability risks. So as long as they can manage financial stability risks separately 
from price stability risks, then we think there's a couple more hikes to go, probably a reasonably extended pause while the lags are observed. And then at the point that we start seeing job losses and economic weakness, and ultimately we think a recession, which probably starts in the third quarter this year, you then start getting much more aggressive rate cuts from the fourth quarter. We're expecting a pretty rapid pace of rate cuts down to a level of about 1.5% by the middle of next year. So yeah, we will ultimately be pushed into a recession that centers around Christmas, first quarter next year. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the time just flies by here, Jerry. Unfortunately, we're, we're down to our last question here, and that's uh, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's nice looking back at uh, my career at this point, even if it does mean I'm approaching midlife crisis age. The first job I had was to very luckily sneak on at the last minute to a graduate program with Salomon Smith Barney in Australia, uh, which obviously became Citigroup. That was after having traveled for a year, um, so I missed all of the, the graduate intake generally, but just through uh, knocking on a few doors, basically snuck in at the last minute to an open slot there, so it was very fortuitous. So that was a bit of a rotation before I ended up on the derivatives strategy desk, which you know formed the basis of my understanding of markets and products across the equity suite, and obviously I branched out a little bit from there into both buy-side as well as multi-asset type of strategy and portfolio management. If I look back to the beginning of my career, I, I sort of, I've always felt a bit immature, I guess. And looking back, I definitely was. I'd say the, the key thing that I wished I knew was exactly what I was very good at, because I think it is important to do the things that you enjoy and have a natural talent for above others, rather than the things you enjoy, but you're always going to have to try hard to learn and keep up. Because to succeed, you, you've really got to lean into your strengths. So that's the first thing. I, I think perhaps related to that is becoming a specialist at something is very valuable. But along the way, make up you make sure you pick up a broad range of colleagues that you stay in touch with and, and keep your network. Because as you go through your career, you'll come across them again and again. Uh, you'll they'll be colleagues, they'll be competitors, they'll be providers, and it definitely proves very useful to make sure you've got broad perspective on what's happening in the industry, where people are, what they're doing while also bringing your own expertise and strengths to that uh, conversation. I've been speaking today with Jerry Fowler, Head of European Equity Strategy and Global Derivative Strategy at UBS. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Jerry. Thanks very much for having me. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this is me, Guiding Assets. <laughs> <laughs>